Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. It's wheat harvest time, have you noticed? Coming to the end of it, but uh, over the last several weeks, if you looked anywhere outside the city limits of town, then you probably noticed that there were combines in the field, and it's kind of an important time of year because that's one of the big cash crops for the farmers in our area. It's also one of the ways that the people of this world are fed, is by the farmers right here in the Northwest. Our guys, our gals out there doing their job, they bring those, those crops right down the hill to our port, and it goes from here all the way around the world. It's a big, important event in the life of our community and of our region each year. Uh, If you are a complete city dweller, you may not know a lot about how this deal goes, but if you pull any farmer aside for a minute, they'll get really interested and animated as they tell you about plants. Yeah, and me, I'm one of those farmer geeks. That's how I grew up. And so I love to talk about this stuff, and I love the smell of of the the dust in the air and all of that. And I don't particularly love the smell of diesel fuel, but you got to have some of that in order to get that wheat in. And this time of year is just one of those things that makes my heart beat fast. But it's also because it's this living illustration for me. You see, wheat plants have a purpose. Their purpose is to produce a crop. You might say that a a wheat plant has one purpose, and it's to become even wheatier, right? It's not just supposed to be a a plant that sprouts out of this little tiny kernel. It's supposed to become even wheatier than it was when it went into the ground, and the only way to do that is to produce many more of its kind. The process begins, as you know, with somebody out there taking these little tiny seeds and putting them down in the dirt where they get some moisture and they get some warmth and they begin to sprout and to grow. And about the time that they break through the soil is one of those big days in the year for us because it's how we can tell that the world is coming back to life after the winter. Do you get a little bit tired of the gray and the brown? Well, every spring, we're greeted by wheat, one of the first things that turns greet, boom, poking its head right up above the soil. And if you watch day by day, this thing starts to grow and to gain momentum. And in a very few short weeks, it has completely blanketed the world around us with this beautiful shade of green. You remember those days, right? In the middle of all this scorching heat where it's turning everything brown again, you remember that just... A few short months ago, the world was becoming green. It was spring. Each drive up onto the Palouse over the course of the growing season of wheat and uh, into the surrounding areas around us gives us an updated glimpse at this process that is the very picture of health. It's wheat plants stretching skyward, growing ahead, eventually forming little kernels of wheat inside there, and gradually that head turns golden brown and bows its head and lets us know that it's time for harvest. It's a beautiful thing in my eyes. But there's a day in that process when absolutely everything changes. Something violent is about to happen. Combines roll into the fields. Now, I don't know how much you know about the internal mechanism of a combine, but it's a, it's a pretty incredible thing. But suffice it to say that once that wheat goes into the front end of that combine, it is in for a rude awakening. There's a, a mechanism in there that is referred to the, as the separator, but essentially what it does is it pounds and it pulverizes and it grinds everything up in there in these metal bars and teeth. It blows a bunch of air up through it, lets it all settle back down, shakes it real hard, sifts it, and then kicks all the junk out the back end. And what you're left with is the thing that you wanted in the first place. 
just the wheat. You don't know that if you've never crawled inside of one of those machines, it just looks like wheat in the front, something out the back, and the guy's dumping all the money into the truck. But it's an incredible process that happens inside that machine. The process is brutal. Now, if you're the guy who's sitting in the seat of the combine, it doesn't really seem like it. It's just the process that you know is absolutely necessary in order to get the desired goal, which is an abundant harvest of wheat. But if you are the wheat plant... It's a pretty rough go. It is, however, necessary, and it's a very normal, healthy, and predictable part of the life of wheat. Well, you didn't come here this morning to get farming lessons, right? You and I go through a similar process to all of this. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does there seem to be some pounding and shaking and sifting going on in your life right now, maybe in recent days? Can you identify with the stalks of wheat that are going through the combines in our areas these days? If you're experiencing difficulty in your life right now, then as I talk about the literal cutting and pounding and blowing and shaking and sifting that wheat goes through, well, it probably conjures up some feelings and some thoughts in you as I'm describing it. And just as is the case with wheat, this process, this pounding, this shaking, this sifting, well, it's inescapable for you too. If you've lived long enough to be sitting in this sanctuary this morning, then you know that life brings seasons of pounding and shaking, sifting, doesn't it? Yeah. As we complete our summer-long look at the uh, series of commands from the book of Hebrews, the let us commands, or the together we do the following things, those commands from the Bible's book titled Hebrews, uh, today I want to consider two questions. Number one, what results are you going to see from the shaking that you'll go through? Number two, what are you going to do while the shaking is happening? If you read just a few of the many, many stories that are scattered across the pages of the Bible, you'll quickly see that the Bible is a collection of shaking stories. Nearly every story in the Bible is a tale of something that was once stable and healthy and good being put through a period of pressure and pounding and shaking in the hope that something valuable will remain. And when we get to the end of the New Testament's letter to the Hebrews, the writer seizes one such story from the Old Testament and a prophecy about the ultimate end of time, and he weaves these two things together, and he uses them to teach you and I how we can live during the shaking that we will certainly face from time to time. Now, if you're going through a time of shaking right now, you can learn something from this lesson today that I promise you is capable of transforming your experience of the hard stuff of life. If your life is pretty peaceful and easy right now, it might be a good idea to pay attention today anyway, because if your life is like everyone else's, and it is, then there's another time of shaking that's going to come in your life. But you can be ready to face it and to know how to get through it in a way that benefits you. So today, we're going to wrap up our series together we by looking at Hebrews chapter 12. Let me give you just a little bit of background on the story. At at the point where we'll take up the reading, the writer has reminded his original audience of a very well-known story from their nation's history, and it happened right around the time that they had gotten their independence as a nation. Now, if you can remember any of the stories from the lives of our founding forefathers, then you can see how important those stories around that that, that revolve around the, the beginning of any nation are to their people. 
Just as the stories of Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson and those guys are important to us and we, we teach them to our children and we recount them and retell them, the Jews did the same thing. The Israelites did the same thing. They told the story of the beginning of their nation. And it's one of those stories that we're going to take a look at today. Uh, actually, the Hebrews commentary on it. Uh, if, just as we can remember that somewhere around Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, somewhere around 1776, a bunch of people gathered in a room and signed a declaration of independence. So the people of Israel remembered that their forefathers also received a national charter, but theirs came at a meeting with God himself at a place called Mount Sinai. And it was just as big to them as the, our, the beginnings of our nation are to us. We celebrate Independence Day how? Food and what? Fireworks. Yeah, fireworks. And so did they, sort of. Uh, The the Bible's second book, the one titled Exodus, tells this story in detail. It says that God had summoned the Israelite leader Moses to a summit meeting in the most literal sense. He was supposed to climb this mountain and there meet with God. And so the people of Israel approached this place where God had called Moses, and he told the people, you stay down there, just Moses comes up here with me. And so as they got over to the mountain... It looked like the mountain was on fire. You know why? Because the mountain was on fire. What, it was a trick question. It's because the mountain was on fire. There was fire. There was smoke. It was billowing up from it, smoldering. And then these dark clouds began to form around. It looked like a storm was coming. And all of a sudden, thunder and lightning raining down out of the sky, booming. And the earth beneath them was shaking. It was a wildfire and a horrendous thunderstorm and an earthquake all at once. How do you think those people responded? Just like you and I would have. They were terribly afraid. And on top of all of this, these natural wonders that are happening in front of them, this big voice starts booming out, and they recognize it as the voice of none other than God himself. And as God continued to speak to the people, it was shaking them. Yes, the earth was shaking beneath them. Yes, the mountain in front of them was shaking. It was the voice of God speaking to the people that had them really shaking in their shoes. It completely freaked them out. The whole episode was a shaking and sifting thing. It sorted things out for them. Some of the people drew closer to God that day, and some of them told Moses, tell God to keep a safe distance. We don't like getting close enough to God to get shaken. So how about this? You go up the mountain and talk to him, and whatever message he gives you, you come down and say it in a nice voice, okay? Be kind of quiet and church-like, would you? But tell God to keep his distance, because he scares us. Now, the writer of the Hebrews takes up that story, and he offers this commentary to his first readers who were going through a very difficult shaking and sifting episode in their own life. We're going to read it, and I'd ask you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Lord... Every time we turn our attention to these pages, there's a fantastic opportunity for us. Because you promised that you would meet us there. You said, my words are spirit and they are truth. That's the same way that you describe yourself. So as we come to the scriptures this morning, we want you to know, we're not here to do a book report. We're not here for a history lesson. We want to encounter you, Lord. Would you come and speak to us from your written word? your name I pray. Amen. I'm reading to you from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 26. The writer says this, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. On that day in ancient history, God was putting on more than a light show. He was demonstrating to his people, to anyone who would listen that day, exactly how life works. We go through difficult circumstances from time to time, and they're supposed to sort things out for us. The Hebrew Christians that our New Testament letter was addressing were, were getting shaken. Life was getting pretty tough for these Hebrew Christians, and because of it, they were considering turning their back on the Jesus faith and the Jesus life altogether. The writer to the Hebrews picks up on this fear and this temptation in their lives, and he says, don't you get it? What you're going through today, it's just like what our founding fathers went through back then. In that day, God was shaking our forefathers for a purpose. And verse 27 tells us what it is. It says, he shakes that which can be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. Then he goes on in the next verse to explain that this is the only way for these people to get what they wanted, which was a relationship with God that would stand the test of time. Something that our American forefathers might have called a more perfect union. A relationship is built to last. But then the writer says something that we don't at all expect. In the middle of the shaking and the sifting, in the middle of the hard, difficult things, he says that we are supposed to do something very specific. He says we are to worship. Hmm. What? Uh, during the hard stuff? Worship? When there's things happening in my life that I don't like, the response is I'm supposed to worship? That's right. In the middle of the painful, troubling circumstances that shake us up, we're to seek out some time with God, focus our attention on Him, begin to worship Him. We're to intentionally arrest our own outraged feelings and the thoughts that are swirling through our minds, and by an act of our wills, we are to offer to God the respect that He deserves as the Almighty God of this universe. Now listen, I'm a pragmatist, and so are you. And if any of us is really honest about the things that I have just said to you this morning, then we'll have to admit that that's a pretty tough assignment. When life's going bad, when it's getting painful, the response is, yay, God, really? You may be thinking, uh, Cliff, let me, let, me, let me get this straight. You're saying that this almighty God of heaven and earth has served notice that from time to time, he's gonna mess with my life. When it's going good, he's gonna mess it up. And then I'm supposed to say, thank you for that? I understand if you protest a little bit. But it might be because you misunderstood what I said. And I read the scriptures to you, and they didn't say that. They didn't say that the Almighty God uses his powers to jack with people. It doesn't say that he messes with our lives. It says that the God of heaven and earth, who is both all-powerful and holy and good, will engineer circumstances in your life and mine that will sort some things out for us. It'll shake things up enough that you and I can begin to do some sifting 
and to sort th- some things out. That's way different than a, than a cosmic bully who just messes with you because he can. And quite frankly, this passage doesn't even say to thank God when that happens. Now, a little truth in advertising. There's another passage that does, okay? This says, in the hard stuff, make sure you say thank you. This one doesn't say thank you. Instead, this passage says, why don't you show proper respect to God even when your life's not going well? How about about the time that you grow dissatisfied with your set of circumstances, you one more time point your heart and your mind the direction of God, and you just admit that he's the God and that you're not? Get good with it. The tradition in which the Church of the Nazarene was born has always allowed every individual to decide for himself or herself what reverence and awe look like in worship. Now, just so you know, um, in the days of our denomination's origins, other people, other churchgoers ridiculed the Church of the Nazarene because they said we were holy rollers. They, They said we were Pentecostal. And we said, yep, we are, which in the day simply meant that we were so enthusiastic about what God is doing in our lives in the way that he's shaking us up and changing our lives from the inside out that we let all the excitement show on the outside. And so we were a little boisterous about it. Who knew, right? Because most Nazarenes sit, here's how you can tell most Nazarenes. They sit down while they sing, stand stand up, stand up for Jesus. They sing about lifting up holy hands like this, right? But there was a day, I promise, I'm not making this up, when uh, people ridiculed us for how excited we were about what God is doing in our lives. Hmm. This passage doesn't tell us thank him for the hard stuff. It says simply acknowledge that God is God, that he has the authority and the power, and you are willing to give him respect even when you don't like the set of circumstances that you're facing. Passage tells us to remember who is God and who is not, and to make sure that even in the middle of the shaking and the sorting times in life that we acknowledge that fact by worshiping him. So let's just be practical here. Um, There are times when your life is painful and difficult. You cry out to God. You ask him to do something about this ugly set of circumstances because you're like me. You like the easy, comfortable life. And about the time that you cry out to God, why don't you do something about all this pain and suffering in my life? He says, I am doing something about it. I'm shaking the clutter and the garbage out of your life. So why don't you decide to trust that I'm good? I want you to decide to trust that I know what I'm doing. And why don't you recenter your heart through worship and let me finish the job this time? Now listen, I said that today I was going to address two questions. What results are you going to see from the shaking that you inevitably will face in this life? And what are you going to do while the shaking is happening? And the answer to the first question, what results are you going to see, will be determined by how you answer the second one. That is, what are you going to do while the hard stuff's happening? If in the middle of the tests in your life, you decide to believe that God is still good and that he's working to bring about something good for you through the shaking and the sifting process, and if you then therefore decide to worship him, you will find that in that act, your heart changes and your experience of the difficult circumstances of life change as well. Do you know why God commands us to worship him in the middle of the hard stuff? It's not because he's mean, 
Remember spiritual principle number one? God's not a jerk. It's still true. You know why he commands us to worship him in the middle of the process? It's because he knows what it will do for you. He knows how your frame of mind and how the condition of your heart will change whenever you quit looking at the problems and you look at him as the God. We studied it last time I preached two weeks ago. Keep your eyes on the prize, not on the pain, and you will find that it transforms your experience of the difficult stuff. If you praise him in the hard times, you'll find that you can experience relief from worry, peace in place of nervousness, and even joy right alongside some otherwise negative feelings. And the end result of the shaking that God does and the sorting and the worship that you do will be that you end up getting the very best stuff that life has to offer. You get closeness to God and you get all the blessings that he dreamed up for you in eternity past and that he has declared will be yours in connection with Jesus. Not all the good stuff waits for heaven, friends. Much of it can be experienced in this life, but only if you decide to trust God, even during the hard stuff, draw close to him and worship him as God. But if you don't choose to trust and to worship, where does that leave you? Well, it leaves you exactly where most people live. It leaves you where most Christians live because in this one area, when it comes to this one thing, most Christians don't live any differently than people who don't believe in God at all. Everyone goes through difficult times. Newsflash, right? Everyone goes through difficult times. But when those times come, most people don't choose to trust God and they don't choose to worship. They choose instead to worry. They choose instead to complain. They choose instead to accuse God of not being good enough or not powerful enough or not caring enough about them. And they just lay there and wallow in the hard stuff. They go through the shaking. Everybody does. Because God lovingly and wisely puts us all through it. But they don't do their part. And when they don't do their part, the sifting, the sorting, and the worship... It just leaves them there holding on to all the junk, including the pain and the worry and the sorrow and the fear and the things that distract us from God. And when you do that all the way through one time of testing, when the test is over, all you have left is the junk, the ugly. And when you make that your, your pattern or your habit, where every time you face a hard thing, you just accuse God, you, you get your distance from him because you're going you're gonna, to uh, push God to arm's length because he's not acting like you want him to act. When you make that the pattern of your life, go through hard thing, push away from God. Go through hard thing, push away from God. Go through hard thing, complain to God. You know what's going to happen? Your heart's going to grow bitter and angry and your mind is going to grow dark. So that even when the good stuff comes, you'll have this really well-developed ability to see the black lining in the silver cloud, and that's it. When the good stuff, when the good times come from God, all you will be able to do is complain. That's all you'll be able to do. Because you only see the good stuff as the calm before the next storm. You see, you're teaching you how to live by how you respond to the difficult stuff that God is bringing your way. He's bringing it your way because he loves you. He wants to shake so that you can sort, pound so that you can separate, cast off the stuff that's no good 
keep the good stuff that He dreamed for you from eternity past. But if you don't choose to trust and you don't choose to worship, you stay in the place that you were and all you have is the ugly. We gather here each week for what we call a worship service. Each week there are people who enter this place happy because the previous week was a good one and they worship God because they really feel like it. Each week there are also people who walk in here with heavy, darkened hearts because they've had a really rough week and their hearts are hurting and they're maybe a little bit angry. They, they don't worship. They just show up. They don't worship because they don't feel like it. There's a whole other group of people. They don't show up at all because they didn't feel like it this week either. The ones who show up and don't worship, the dark heart, the, the ones who, who decide to hang on to the anger and to hang on to the junk, hang on to the bitterness, they don't worship because they don't feel like it. They're here, but they're protesting God's way of managing their lives. They look around and they begin to protest everything that's happening around them, including the way you worship, because you raise your hands and they're not hand raisers. And the last church I pastored, those people... You were tired by the, by the time they were done with worship because they were, they were these people. You know what I mean? And I had this woman come up to me and say, why do they always have to jump? There's not an answer for that. I don't know why they have to jump. But they did. And I uh, helped her understand that in, in our tradition, we've always said, you get to decide what is reverent. You get to decide what is a display of awe. You see, when you hold on to the ugly, when you refuse to worship God in the middle of your darkness, what you do is you come in this place and you criticize everything that happens around you. You criticize the other worshipers too. Yeah, there's no room for that in life. I mean, if you're here today and you brought the dark with you, man, I'm glad you're here. And I don't know what you did during those first four songs, but there's four more coming here in just a couple of minutes and maybe you can approach it a little bit differently. Maybe having not heard what I had to say, but just read that, those few short verses from Hebrews, you come to the place where you say, you know what? It's been a hard week or year or decade. But I come to worship. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to consider for just a moment that God knows what he's doing. And that he doesn't use life against me. He uses it for me. He's using it this time to break up some stuff that needs to be sloughed off. And so for just a moment, I'm, I'm going to focus my attention and my affection, my attention and my affection on God. I'm going to praise him as the God of heaven and earth. And as we go forward from this place today, I'm going to ask him to help me sort out what it is that I'm supposed to hold on to in the middle of all of this shaking. And whatever he says to turn loose of, I'm going to turn loose of it. The commands in Hebrews are together commands. They're not individual commands. It's not Lisa, do this. It's not Beth, do this. It's all of you together. See to it that all of you together do this. When, when the, they're kind of negative commands, it's all of you together. See to it that none of you does this. And one of the, the Negative commands is, see to it that all of you together don't allow the root of bitterness to spring up. Wheat, we like it when that grows. Bitterness, mm mm-mm. No room for that in the kingdom. 
We come to this place each week to worship partly because God deserves it. Regardless of the circumstances in our life and our opinion of the circumstances in this life, the almighty God of heaven and earth deserves for somebody to say that he's the almighty God of heaven and earth. We worship for that reason. That's first and foremost why we worship. We also worship because we need to shake loose from our souls some of the stuff that has just been hanging on for far too long. Right? Worship is first and foremost for the Almighty God. And because He's good, He designed it in such a way that it benefits you and me. We give Him thanks for that. God's doing some shaking. Will you do some sifting? Trusting that God is working, will you choose to worship? Worship team, join me, please.